This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello and welcome to Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we are happy to be with you today to talk to you about the corporate alternative minimum tax or the tax on gap, as uh, I like to call it. Um, And uh, just in the pre-meeting here, Jeff and I have been having quite a lively discussion. I'm not even 100% sure that uh, we totally agree on why this is uh, uh, a big deal, although I think we both agree it is a big deal. So this should make for what I think will be a lively and interesting uh, discussion. So to begin today, uh, I want to give just a few minutes of background, which will hopefully set the stage for our discussion. And um, before I jump in too deep, I want to invite you to uh, make comments uh, or ask questions through the chat feature on YouTube Live. I'll try to monitor those and we'll try to address those questions uh, as they come in. Um, So feel free to do that at any point. By way of background, um, there are many ways that one could think about what's happening, but here's like, I guess, a big, a high level overview. The Democrats, as we've discussed recently, are trying to pass this big spending bills, and they're trying to find revenue to uh, make it all work. And um, there are a few senators who are not totally on board with various aspects of the proposal. And so last time we chatted, we talked about the billionaire's tax. And like not too long after we chatted, like maybe a matter of hours, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, said, no, not, not on with the billionaire's tax. And shortly thereafter, a new proposal came out, which is actually sort of an old proposal, which is this alternative minimum tax based on financial accounting income. So uh, just quickly, um, if you are familiar with uh, business, you know that there are financial accounting rules, which are set by the Financial Accounting Standards Board. We call them GAAP, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And typically, we have something like revenue, We take out expenses, that gives us pre-tax income, then we have some tax expense, and we get net income. What many people are not as familiar with is there is an alternative accounting system, which is governed by the rules set by Congress and enforced by the Internal Revenue Service, codified in the Internal Revenue Code, and that those rules create a different accounting system. And in that tax accounting system, there are revenues and there are also expenses. We don't call them expenses sometimes for tax purposes. We call them deductions, but same thing. And once we take the deductions away from the revenues, we come up with taxable income. We multiply taxable income by the corporate tax rate, maybe take out some credits, and we end up with the amount of tax that gets paid to the government. Well, it turns out that because those two systems are fundamentally trying to achieve different objectives, 
they end up treating revenues differently and they treat expenses differently. And therefore, the earnings numbers or the income numbers are quite different often. So, for example, the, the tax rules are set by Congress who have at least three objectives. One is to raise revenue. One is to encourage or discourage behavior. So we see this in all kinds of ways. For example, we give tax breaks to companies that invest in sustainable energy or something like that. And then a third one would be the redistribution of wealth. Now, I know Jeff is going to want to chime in right now because Jeff says there's a fourth purpose, which is what, Jeff? Fourth purpose is to get politicians reelected. I mean, you look at a lot, a lot of things in our tax code and you can really only explain it with that uh, actual purpose. There are some very strange things which sometimes don't fit any of those objectives, and but they do sort of fit with the let's get reelected. Okay, so that's what politicians are trying to accomplish through the tax system. In contrast, the Financial Accounting Standards Board is trying to make rules that provide financial statements that are informative to investors as they make decisions to allocate their scarce resources. Well, when we start to examine whether or not a firm has paid its fair share in taxes, what we tend to do is we take something like the amount of tax the company paid, and that comes essentially by using the tax accounting system, and we divide that number by the pre-tax income, which comes from the financial accounting system. And in many situations, this creates uh, large discrepancies where the amount of tax appears very low compared to uh, the pre-tax income that's reported to shareholders, or in some cases, actually, it's quite high. So some famous cases recently, you may have heard that a few years ago, Amazon earned something like $11 billion in accounting profits but had no tax. Um, I know that this past year, Salesforce was accused of having $2.6 billion in profits and not paying any tax. Maybe last year in the New York Times, uh, FedEx was uh, highlighted for having no federal tax but $5 billion of income. So this, this is like a common issue. And when we see these numbers that make it appear as though big companies are not paying their fair share, there is often very strong political motives for um, figuring out how to make them pay more. And there are two possibilities. One is change the way we account for income on the tax side. And the other is make companies pay taxes on the financial accounting side. And this proposal is essentially uh, taking the latter approach by seeking to make at least some corporations pay taxes on their financial accounting earnings if they haven't paid enough tax when calculating their tax liability using the conventional system. Okay, so um, why is this a big deal? I think that Jeff and I, at some level, are uniquely suited among, not, not uniquely, but as tax accounting academics, a tax on financial accounting income is something that accounting tax people probably have a little more understanding of as compared to, say, a typical economist or a typical lawyer. Not that they don't understand, but we spend our lives thinking about and teaching about financial accounting and how it interacts with tax system. And when one thinks about these two um, 
this possibility of taxing financial accounting income, the financial accounting accountant in me, and I think in Jeff, starts to scream, ah, this is scary and maybe not like a great idea. And there's many reasons why that could be. I'm going to highlight one, and then I'm going to turn it to Jeff, and I'm sure he'll have lots to say. So the first thing that bothers me about imposing a tax on financial accounting income is that once a tax is attached to a number, the policymakers, Congress, will be very tempted to use their influence to determine how that number is computed. In other words, Congress might be tempted to pressure the Financial Accounting Standards Board to adopt certain policies with regard to recognition of revenue or recognition of expenses to make sure that they get the outcome that they desire, that Congress gets the outcome it desires. But financial accounting is set with an alternative purpose, which is to provide information to investors. And there's a significant amount of accounting research that would say if uh, taxes are based on financial accounting income, the financial accounting income could very easily become less informative and harm investors or others who use that information because it's no longer reflecting its apolitical motive of providing information. Jeff? I think that's, I mean, that, that, that point you bring up is super important, right? You said that there would be two ways to solve this problem. One would be to, for the, to change the internal revenue code and just like get rid of some of the things that make it so companies don't pay much in tax. The other is to tax financial accounting income. Um, I mean, left implicitly stated is who would actually be making the changes to the Internal Revenue Code? It would be Congress, because Congress is the one who created the Internal Revenue Code. So they create this system that makes it so companies don't pay enough in tax, at least according to some members of Congress, and yet they're unwilling to change that system that they've created. And so I, to me, this just kind of implies or suggests kind of the the ineptitude of Congress that they uh, have all these like weird political incentives to do strange things that get to the place we want. And so what you're saying is we're going to have these same political incentives layered on financial accounting income, which is really kind of scary, right? So it's a very, very common in the United States to like not think that highly of Congress and think that they are all just like out to get reelected. Um, public opinion of Congress is at a very low place right now. Uh, it's never been super, super, super high. We suspect politicians of all these things. We don't like our internal revenue code. Um, you know, we have all these problems. So these are concerns like everybody has. Everybody's unaware of these things. Um, those aren't actually shared with by financial accountants about the Financial Accounting Standards Board or financial accounting standards. Right? Certainly people like have concerns about specific things, but the Financial Accounting Standards Board who creates the rules for book income is pretty highly regarded both in the United States and worldwide. They're a pretty serious body who really are out just to try to create the best standards possible. And um, to the extent we like layer these political incentives on top of that, it's really kind of scary what could happen. So um, here's an example. If you don't like that FedEx paid zero in tax on $5 billion of income, if you dig into their financial statements, you realize that what happened was they took a whole lot of accelerated depreciation deductions which, of course, Congress allowed them to do by passing standards that give accelerated but not, not allowed them to do. Encourage them to do. Congress like, passes this law that says, we have an idea. We'll let you take more depreciation so you invest more, and that's going to like help things. And so then and they so do that, they and then say, ah, more. we take it back. We don't want you to do that anymore. We're going to tax it now because 
I guess we changed our minds or something. And the and the so and, one so so one simple solution to that would be repeal the accelerated depreciation deductions, right? Yep. And okay. And if you're Amazon and you have 11 billion and it's in income and pay no tax because you have a lot of tax deductions based on the restricted stock that you grant to your employees, you could clearly change the way that deductions are given for restricted stock grants. That could easily be done. But instead of doing that, we're going to tax financial accounting. Income. When you say it could easily be done, uh, I mean, that, that's false, actually. It can't easily be done, which is a guy to the problem. It can't easily politically be done. It would be, right. it would be easy technically to do. Uh, it's quite hard politically. And so this is all, and this is part of what I think frustrates financial accountants of this is we're not, not necessarily that political beings. Like we, we are into debits and credits and tax numbers. And, um, and so to, to force a political change to the system because it's like politically difficult to do something, I think frustrates us a little bit. I think the, the second thing that Amazon case that you mentioned is because of the difference in financial accounting for, uh, stock related compensation, right? I think that's a super fascinating case because that's one of the most important cases in, in which Congress already has meddled with the financial accounting standards board. So I think, I mean, you can tell me if you agree with this or not, but had Congress not meddled with the FASB, Amazon would be paying way more in tax as a percentage of their financial accounting income. It's Congress that created that like discrepancy between the tax they pay and their financial accounting income because of their previous political meddling. Uh, now I guess I'm not 100% sure what you're referring to. <laughs> so the, the, we have, the Financial Accounting Standards Board has tried to revise the way we book for financial accounting uh, purposes, stock-based compensation. And they haven't yeah. been allowed to do it several times by Congress. Yeah, that's that. So it is true, and in fact, there's a very interesting history related to stock-based compensation accounting. Because if you go back even further, like into say the 80s and 90s, the accounting expense was even less than it currently is, and it has become. You take more expense now than you used to, but still not but still not all the expense not that the economics would dictate. And the reason why yeah. it's not as much as the economics would dictate is because every every time the FASB tries to do it, Congress steps in and says, "Uh, you can't do that." It's like we yeah. we've had a preview to what could happen if you let the if you let Congress's foot in the door of the FASB, just doesn't seem like it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, well, and another interesting thing, I'll just tell the story real quick. So during the campaign, um, Elizabeth Warren made the proposal to tax financial accounting income, and, and I wrote a op-ed which is in the Wall Street Journal, and Jeff wrote an op-ed which was on the Hill. And also, Jeff has testified before Congress and done various written in various places about this issue. And one of the predictions that we made was, oh, politicians might start fiddling around with financial accounting. And sure enough, like three months later or something like that, um, 11 senators, Elizabeth Warren among them, and Bernie Sanders wrote a letter to the Financial Accounting Standards Board urging the adoption of a specific policy that they believed would aid in tax enforcement, which, of course, is it's OK. You can obviously ask FASB to do whatever you want. But that objective of tax enforcement is something that really should not be what financial accounting standards are all about. Financial accounting standards should be about providing information to investors. And if you want something to help with tax enforcement, you can get the Internal Revenue Service to have the power to collect that information. 
which would help in enforcement. So, yeah, so that, um, that was kind of an interesting example. So that was something that Scott and I and another colleague, um, Andrew Belknap, actually wrote a little a little like letter to the FASB saying we should like be careful about that. And when I was talking with colleagues about it, they would say like, why are you writing this letter? It's so self-evidently true that like the FASB shouldn't be doing these things. Why are you even wasting your time with this? And I said, well, it's, it's not self-evidently true to the 11 senators who are asking FASB to do it. And in the end, like Congress does have some, could have some power over the FASB in, in a more of a way than just like writing nice letters. Yeah. And what's interesting is in our letter, we didn't argue for or against the adoption of the standard. We basically just said to FASB, don't adopt standards using the objective of tax enforcement as the basis. Adopt standards because they provide better information to users of financial statements. Um, okay. So um, let's talk about another possible issue. Let's suppose that in a, some crazy world, uh, financial accountant, accounting rules get really messed up because Congress is exerting their influence. Uh, one, another, another negative or concerning ramification would be that investors will still demand information, which could lead to an increase in the use of pro forma reporting, which is already a controversial practice in the financial accounting world. Pro forma meaning let's Let's report some income number which is not following the rules of GAAP but has some adjustments. And you can imagine that that might possibly increase. So that's that's like another ramification. Yeah, and I think – All right. I, I was going to ask you, Jeff, if you want to comment on that, please do. But I also want you to talk to me or talk to everybody here that's listening a little bit about the history of this because I know you've thought about that and it's quite fascinating, the history of the tax on GAAP. Well, so, I mean, uh, for a long time we've been upset when we don't see companies paying enough in tax. And I phrase that in a very specific way, saying we don't think they're paying enough in tax because, I mean, it's, it's a complicated thing, right? The, the tax code taxes taxable income. And if companies have taxable income, they'll pay tax on it. Uh, and we seem to get really kind of upset by the fact that a very large, successful-looking company might not actually have taxable income because of the way we've written the tax code. So and there's been a whole bunch of different things we've done this. I mean, we had the corporate AMT, so it's a corporate uh, alternative minimum tax which uh, instead of the approach we're taking right now, it basically said we have the tax tax number that we don't like apparently because it's not like collecting enough in taxes. So we're going to take out a few of these things uh, and then have this adjusted taxable income number and we're going to tax that. So we did that for a long time. Actually in the late 80s, uh, kind of a very important piece to this story as far as the current proposal is that part of the corporate AMT was to adjust in ways that were related to book income. So it was basically an indirect way of taxing book income. And I mean, the thinking back then again was, you know, we have this number, it's an alternative way to account profits. Maybe we should just tax it. We're going to use it as part of the, the alternative minimum tax base. And it didn't work out well, right? So we had that in place for a couple of years. It got taken out of, uh, out of the law. Um, and we have actually, a, you know, what we know of, what financial accountants know about the ramifications of taxing book income are from that, like a little historical episode, right? We have uh, empirical evidence that firms did manage their income as a result of that. So this is something Scott alluded to a little bit before, but to, to elaborate a little bit more, what do we mean by that? We mean, well, for financial accounting purposes, companies want to have high income in general, especially like to beat thresholds, uh, to beat earnings targets, those kind of thing. They have low taxable income. And so when you tax book income, the company's going to say, well, okay, we, we have the ability to make financial accounting decisions to lower our financial accounting income. We're going to manage earnings to pay less in income, to pay less in taxes. 
And we know that they did that in the late 80s as a, as a result of uh, this previous version of the law. Now, something that's very different then, or now versus then, is back then, presumably they just kind of like, outside investors saw that lower uh, income. They said, well, that's like not great that the company's not doing as well. Maybe we want to sell their stock. Maybe they're not doing as well um, selling stuff to their customers because companies had more limited ways of communicating to investors their actual financial accounting outcomes. Now, just like Scott said, I, I think you're going to see companies managing down their earnings and then coming back and saying, you know, you know, looks like earnings per share is a dollar, but it's really a dollar ten because we made these adjustments and we have this pro forma income number or this non-gap, we call it pro forma number, this non-gap number, this street earnings number, uh, this number that we're going to adjust in ways that don't follow gap, that often look more positive for the company, and investors might rely on that number uh, to get the true sense of how the company's doing. So that might actually be good in that it might give companies or give investors a better portrayal of the firm because you know we we messed up the gap number to get out of paying taxes. We're going to give them the real number that isn't messed up uh, through poor form of earnings but also just opens the door for companies to get more and more creative with how they account for things in general, right? Once you've encouraged them to use performer numbers, we, you know, gap is off the table and companies can do whatever they want. That, and I think that's the scary part. The reason we have gap and the financial accounting standards board, we create standards to help the earnings numbers and the other financial statements be comparable be reliable and all of these characteristics that we desire. And with performa numbers, there's no, uh, standard setters that is helping to enforce that type of uh, those types of characteristics in the pro forma reports. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like, like here's, let me, let me try to give like a concrete example of, of how this might happen. So if you're Amazon and you have 11 billion of tax and 11 billion of income, but no tax. And so you're going to be forced to pay some tax on your financial accounting earnings, of course, you might say, well, maybe we can lower our financial accounting earnings. How might they do that? It's possible under certain circumstances to alter slightly the way that share-based compensation is given so that it's treated like a debt instrument. And when that happens, you can mark to market the expenses that you uh, record, which essentially would take Amazon's 11 billion of income and reduce it significantly, possibly even down to close to zero. But of course, Amazon would be the first company on the planet to say, oh, well, the reason this happened is because we treated the share-based compensation as an expense, but really it's not. So here's our income before share-based compensation. Or if you're FedEx, what you would do is you would say, well, we use this really long depreciation rate uh, time long depreciation life for our airplanes for financial accounting purposes. Let's start making that shorter, but then we'll just report an EBITDA number earnings before depreciation. And we'll say, look, depreciation is a non-cash charge. It doesn't really matter for your you know, wealth as a shareholder. So ignore that number and let's move forward. And with like a hundred percent probability, that type of stuff would happen. It's already happening. It would just potentially become worse. And the reason it's concerning is because it's not governed by any kind of regulator. Yeah. I think, so I think one thing, you know, we talked about some of these negative consequences of this. I think one thing that we should talk about, Scott, is the alternative to this. Well, one alternative to this, and actually why we got here in this particular um, kind of economic proposal 
planning in the last few weeks is we got here because we wanted to, or the Democrats wanted to increase the corporate tax rate, but there was a particular senator who wasn't willing to do it. So, so she said, look, you know, we don't want to increase corporate tax rate. How can we still get more money out of corporations to be able to pay for all the spending we want to do? And so they came up with this plan. So how do we, how would we think about just increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% up to some other higher number as opposed to this? Like, is there, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, so really the question is um, how to raise revenue from corporations, I think is what you're asking. And so I am super biased here by I think my, you know, training as an accountant and as an economist and so forth, which is when I see lots of preferences in the tax code for this thing or that thing, I get nervous because when you include preferences, you increased distortions. And this gets back to the age-old argument of a low rate with a broad base is better than a high rate with a narrow base. And what that basically means is the same rate doesn't apply to all firms, or, or the same rate might, but the types of income that are excluded are changing depending on the industry you're in or your business model or something like that. You know, like I'm very much in favor of um, eliminating, um, like strange or unusual preferences, I call them, or special tax deals and keeping the base broad. And I think we've gotten far, far away from that. I think the base is not as broad as it should be. And like, it's kind of a cop out answer, but I, I guess I kind of think like, yeah, broaden the base by getting rid of all the crazy little deductions that exist for this firm or this little industry or that little thing and, and make it a, a, a more simple system. I think, I mean, I think it is a cop out. I think it is. I, I agree with it. I think it's like the economically true it answer. Is a cop out, it is says. a cop out answer. Here's a little story that I think is pretty fascinating. So was, uh, at one point in my career dealing with a elected representative and I wanted to say like what, um, we wanted we wanted to make this point exactly right. We should like take away these these things, and we wanted to come up with some examples of negative things you should get from the tax code. And so I had like several different examples that I was willing to say we should not do this and we should not do that. And they just seemed like you know, there's really no good reason these things should be in the tax code. Um, and the person that I was dealing with, uh, we basically just took out that paragraph because in, in you know there were several many taxpayers that this person cared about that were benefit from this proposal, benefit from this thing, benefit from this thing. And it's not that any of those things had a, a huge economic rationale. It's not that this politician like put those things in the tax code. They've been in there for like decades, but taking them out would affect their constituents, right? So it, it like you have to layer on the politics and realize the answer just like, oh, let's just like take out the preferences. Every preference that you add, like somebody gets richer because of that. Some company gets richer because of that. And they're going to fight really hard if you want to take it away from them. Okay, so you needed to ask your question differently. You needed to ask, what can be done that is politically viable to increase more tax or you know raise more tax? Yeah. So, uh, well, actually, what I ask is, how do you how do you think about taxing book income versus just increasing the corporate tax rate, which I think is the much more politically uh, viable uh, viable situation, but which does uh, hit a different set of firms. Yeah, I mean, to me, what's really the difference? You're raising the tax rate. You're just doing it in a more sneaky way in some ways, and you're not doing it for everybody. You're only doing it for these sort of sort of super rich 
companies, right? Right. And if what your objective is, is to tax the 50 most profitable companies a little more, I mean, politically, you might be able to say, okay, we're going to have a progressive rate, which is 21% up until you have a billion in profit, and then it's 25%. But the interesting thing is that wouldn't even affect these companies because they're reporting zero in taxable income. Now, the pro- so the problem the is the base, key, not the rate. For the for the, the so problem is the base. It's not the rate. Well, so again, it's problem. what it's. Uh, it depends on what problem you're talking about. Is is the problem is that like we get real upset in our heart or our soul or whatever part of us gets upset. Uh, when we see these companies not paying enough in tax, in that case, it's the base. But if the problem is we just need more money because like we want to spend a lot of money, then the problem is both the base and the rate. We could collect more rate from the base we currently have and get more revenue. And I, yeah. and I, and I actually kind of really quite disagree with something you just said. You said something like if we just raise the corporate rate versus textbook income. It's kind of the same thing, uh, but like a little sneakier. I think the sneakier part is super important. I think we need to have like a transparent tax code that doesn't like go in through the back door. But like all of the problems we've talked about for the first 25 minutes of this program wouldn't be problems if we just increased the corporate tax rate, right? Yep. So the, the, the degradation of the reliability of corporate profit of uh, financial accounting income because of like the FASB's political incentives, because companies would manage earnings, those wouldn't happen if you just increase the corporate tax rate. I mean, to me, if you increase the corporate tax rate, like the higher it gets, the more distortionary it is, but it's very linear. It's just like, it's a little more distortionary. If you go from 21 to 25%, it'd be like a little tiny bit worse, but the world's not going to end, right? We've had it at 35%. The world was like, okay, it gets better as far as like distortion, the lower it gets, it gets a little worse, the higher it goes. But if you open up this new, this new thing, it's a fundamentally different tax with a fundamentally new different set of incentives that I, I think would be quite detrimental. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said there. And it is kind of amazing to think about what's really underlying here, the the motivation here. It is sort of motivated in part by this desire to have enough revenue to offset the expenditures in the bill. But it's clearly also motivated by a different objective, which is this idea that there are people or companies or whatever you want to call them that have a whole bunch and are not paying and that's many of these um, progressive uh, Democrats have campaigned very fervently on the idea of taxing the rich. The big corporations are getting away with sort of unfair advantages. And that second objective of kind of redistribution of wealth or, you know, dealing with inequities in income or wealth in our society clearly seemed to be at play here. And then I do think there's the other objective, which is just what's going to look good for me. And I think if you are Elizabeth Warren or if you're Bernie Sanders or if you're some of the more progressive Democrats, the idea that you can impose a higher tax on a company that has a very high income is super appealing to your base. And I think that's a huge part of the motivation. But it's probably not the economically most efficient way yeah. to get the revenue needed. I mean, I, I would completely agree with that. So there was a, a few years back, um, the advisor to one of the senators who's very in favor of this tax was called me up. It was before anybody, you know, this round of this uh, tax was on the table. So they were just thinking about starting a tax book income. They called me and asked me what I thought about this. I said, I, I don't think it's a good idea. And in this long conversation that I had with this person, I actually asked like, so why, like, why do you want to do this? Is it really, do you really think this is the best way to raise revenue? 
And the person started out by saying, oh, yes, this is like a great way to raise revenue. And we want to, we want to like provide all these goods and services that the government currently isn't. So we need more revenue. And then they ended up by saying like, and, and my, my boss, this politician who I won't name, my boss, when they're campaigning, people really like when they talk about this. And it came pretty clear from the answer that like it wasn't necessarily the best way to raise revenue, but rather it just made for like really good campaign speeches to talk about like, I'm the, we're going to tax the number that they, that the CEOs tell the shareholders and we're going to like stick it to these large corporations with really no concern for these like huge distortions that they're going to cause. And I'm not sure if it's because they don't understand these distortions or just wish to disregard them, but it, it, it's concerning. Yeah, it is concerning. All right. Um, if there's any last questions, feel free to chat them in. Um, if not, it's been uh, great uh, chatting with you, Jeff. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I actually feel like we could chat for another 30 minutes at least on this. Yeah, we, didn't, we didn't get into any details. We didn't get into any, uh, any of the exciting lack of details. It's great. That's right. I think the interesting thing is not only did we not get into the details, we didn't get into the lack of details, which is sometimes in tax legislation, the most amazing part. Because uh, you still are waiting for treasury regulations and so forth, and nobody even really knows what happened until yeah. maybe sometimes several years after the fact. <laughs> yeah, the devil's in the details, and we just like to ignore the de- ignore the devil. We're ignoring the devil. All right, thanks a lot, uh, Jeff, for uh, chatting again, and thank you all for joining. Um, we'll talk to you next time on Tax Chats. Yeah, thank you.